0: Hello, Kate Jones here, and this is the Love to Teach podcast. I am a history teacher, a middle leader, author, blogger, and now I am entering into the world of educational podcasts. I have recently announced... I have a new book coming out and this is Retrieval Practice 2, Implementing, Embedding and Reflecting. So this is actually my third book, but the second book about retrieval practice. And when I wrote my first book about retrieval practice, I never intended for there to be a sequel. I didn't think there would be. I wanted to include everything that I'd found out and that I'd trialed about retrieval practice into this book. But then after publication, there were some areas which I wish I'd written about more. I wish I'd explored more. And I've carried on learning a lot about retrieval practice, engaging with more research, new research that has been published in 2020. I've worked with a lot of schools. Um, I've spoke to a lot of teachers and leaders. So I just feel like there's a lot more to say about retrieval practice. And I think the first book focused on explaining retrieval practice, the cognitive psychology and then some practical classroom ideas because it was called Research and Resources for Every Classroom and I really wanted it to do what it says on the tin, provide research and provide resources. And the second book about retrieval practice is focusing on implementing, embedding and reflecting. So once we have mastered or understood and grasped the basic concept of retrieval, what happens next? And I really do think that we are ready to move the conversation forward about retrieval practice. And just to give you a little bit of an overview about my new book, the first chapter focuses on academic research from the last five years. I won't be repeating any research from my previous book, um, it's a lot of new research I've encountered that people have shared with me or pointed me in the right direction. And there's also contributions from leading academics. I put the question to academics, what is it teachers should or need to know about retrieval practice? And I asked Henry Roydigger, one of the authors of Make It Stick. I asked professors Elizabeth and Robert Bjork, Dylan Willem the learning scientists, Pooja Agarwal, Jared cooney Horvath, Paul Kirshner, and more. So their contributions are absolutely golden, and I cannot wait for people to read them. But in addition to that, I've also got lots of case studies from teachers as well. So the first chapter very much focuses on the research. The second chapter addresses mistakes made with retrieval practice. These are mistakes from my own classroom or that I've seen online or that I found out about from other schools and this is about the implementing, embedding and reflecting stage and I think this is really important for us to have this conversation where can we go wrong with retrieval practice so we can either avoid those mistakes or rectify it. The third chapter I never thought I would be writing this, but this is about retrieval practice during a global pandemic and how we use retrieval practice with remote learning. I I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, I'll just say that right now. Somebody asked me recently in an interview, Kate, can you tell us what the silver bullet is in education? And I said, I can answer that. And there is no silver bullet. And retrieval practice is wonderful and powerful but it isn't the solution to all of our problems and issues. But in regards to the disruption to learning, retrieval practice is one of the solutions. And then finally, there's a bonus chapter. And this bonus chapter, I've called it a bonus chapter because I have spent a long time collecting and curating the contributions, but I haven't actually written this chapter. Well, I wrote obviously part of it. But it's about what retrieval practice looks like in each subject. So it's delving deep into the nuances of, of different subjects and how they've applied retrieval practice. And I think that'll be really interesting, not only for the classroom teachers of that subject, but for senior leaders who are leading subjects that perhaps they don't specialise in. So this can give unique insight. So I hope it's enjoyable. But today, what I decided to talk about was actually covering the basics and benefits of retrieval practice. So I'm assuming with my second book that people have a good grasp. I'm assuming people have read the first book, but they obviously might not have. So I'll try my best to cover what I consider the basics that teachers and probably students and parents need to know when it comes to retrieval practice. so where to begin in regards to covering the basics of retrieval practice well i think this will be a really interesting overview of cognitive psychology and as i am a historian i'm likely to take a chronological overview of the research that has been published and available to us and recently somebody asked me to explain the importance of memory and my initial reaction was memory drives everything that we do in our lives we wouldn't function without memory when we wake up we remember to brush our teeth we remember how to do that we remember to drive and how to drive and I could go on and on and there's different types of memory there's different stages of memory memory is incredibly complex I find it absolutely fascinating and the retrieval process is a part of learning about memory and teaching and learning therefore every teacher needs to be taking uh, an active interest in cognitive psychology so a good place to start as i've said we're going to travel back in time Uh, chronologically it would be 1885 and that's with the german researcher Hermann ebbinghaus now you may have already heard of ebbinghaus and ebbinghaus forgetting curve he carried out quite an unusual experiment and if people are dismissive saying, why are you talking about research from 1885 that was such a long time ago it's outdated well what is important is that the study that Ebbinghaus carried out the experiment it has been replicated many times since And the results have been very similar to the findings of Ebbinghaus's experiment. So we shouldn't just dismiss it because it's from 1885. This has been quite a turning point in terms of research about memory. So anyway, what did Ebbinghaus do? What did he find out? And what does this actually mean for classroom and learning? So as I said it's quite unusual and the reason why it's unusual is because Ebbinghaus conducted an an experiment on himself which is if you've read any academic research this is not what researchers do but he was keen to find out the amount of time it would take new information to be forgotten. So what Ebbinghaus did was he memorised a list of what he called nonsense syllables and they basically had no semantic meanings or deep associations. And then Ebbinghaus would write down these nonsense syllables in the correct order with accuracy. And he would continue to test himself periodically to see how many of the nonsense syllables that he could recall from memory. And then after some time delays, he would attempt to relearn those nonsense syllables and he recorded the number of rehearsals it would require him to be able to recall it accurately. So Ebbinghaus basically discovered that his ability to recall information that he memorized declined very quickly. And this is what we see in the forgetting curve. The curve shows how forgetting happens rapidly after the initial period of learning has taken place, but then forgetting does slow down. So <laughs> what has been said about forgetting, and this is quite worrying and alarming when teachers first see this, um, is that once information has been encoded, the first 20 minutes after that, that's when we are prone to forgetting that information. And within roughly an hour, that information can be forgotten. And yes, when I read that initially many years ago, I just felt complete panic because we do not want our students to forget the stuff that we are teaching them, to forget the content and the material. So that is really alarming. So the curve shows that after the first day, forgetting does tend to slow down. So despite the fact that he carried out this experiment in 1885, and despite the fact he used nonsense syllables, which we don't do in a in a classroom context um it is important to be aware of this study it is important to be aware of the forgetting curve and how we need to interrupt and disrupt the forgetting curve because we can then use strategies such as spaced retrieval so that what we what doesn't happen is that we introduce new information to students And then we don't revisit it until months later in a formal assessment when it really has been forgotten. Instead, as I said, we can interrupt and disrupt. So um, Ebbinghaus and other research findings have suggested that all individuals forget new information in a similar manner and at a similar rate, regardless of the content or the complexity. So... That's, again, interesting because I know there's been criticism of the forgetting curve, uh, thinking, oh, well, we're all a little bit different. Well, the answer is, is yes and no, because, of course, we are all individuals. But when it comes to the research about memory, a lot of it does apply to a lot of individuals. So therefore, we can apply it to the students in front of us in our classroom. Although something else we need to think about is forgetting it's not the enemy and it was really demoralizing for me and many other teachers when you would deliver a lesson and you felt it went very well and successful and then perhaps a week later or further down the line students couldn't recall anything and then we begin to doubt ourselves and our confidence is knocked and the students confidence is knocked because they forgot it. So instead, we need to realize that forgetting is part of the learning process. And Bjork and Bjork have written a great paper about this recently, um, well, 2019. And I just love the title, Forgetting as the Friend of Learning. And it's about seeing forgetting in a different way. Because you might recall the old style lesson plenary where we did that old, what have you learnt this lesson? And that would, it was always a joy to see that because you'd think the student would write, before this lesson, I didn't know this. And then they were to write their explanation. You say, yes, I have imparted my knowledge and wisdom. I have taught them something. And then you'd be bitterly disappointed the week later. But that type of plenary is deceptive. Because students are saying this is what I have learnt today when in fact they're telling you what you told them five minutes ago. They're basically regurgitating something that has happened very recently. We don't know if it's been learnt. We need to ask those questions later when some time has passed. And this is where we bring in the act of retrieval practice. So to explore this a little bit more, we're going ahead in time now to the 1950s and 60s, um, and we uh, I think a good starting point here would probably be the multi-store model of memory. Um, and also, I like the work uh, of Arthur Melton as well. Both of them have been incredibly helpful. So the multi-store model of memory, and again, if you'd like a visual of this, you just simply need to Google it. There is a lot of information out there. Um, this is a concept by Richard Atkinson and Richard Shiffrin that they proposed in 1968. And this is, on this diagram, you will see the starting point is the sensory store. So this is the starting point where new information is encoded. The learning process begins here with in- attention and encoding. And actually, despite not being aware of what the multisort model of memory actually was, this is part of the model is where I tended to focus my teaching for many years it was about the attention it was about trying to get the information into students minds and not really thinking about the the final stage getting the information out of their long-term memory so this is the sensory stage but the next phase of the multi-store model of memory is what was referred to as short-term memory now you may be familiar with the term working memory and that's because the term working memory um came a little bit later so in 1974 um Alan Badley so Badley and Hitch they they've done published a lot of work about memory they felt that the short term memory and the, the multi store model of memory was was too simplified was oversimplistic and actually that working memory Is more complex than just storing information for a short amount of time, as it can involve organization and processing. And uh, Pedro Dubrucchier has written about this. He calls it the spam filter, that your working memory, as it can only hold so much information at a time, will have the spam filter trying to figure out what is important uh, and that information that needs to be held on to, and then what's spam and what can just go. It's a little bit like trying to figure out what should go into your inbox what should go to your spam that you don't need to see so that's badly and hitch working memory but the the key thing about short-term memory working memory they are they tend to be used um they're referring to immediate memory they're referring to a type of memory that is very limited in terms of its duration and its capacity So, um, and this also links in with uh, the work of John Sweller and cognitive load theory. But in terms of the working memory and the short term memory and the capacity, uh, seven is a magic number. Did you know that? (laughs) Well, seven plus or minus two, according to Miller. And this was in 1956. So he would have been referring to the short term memory. So Miller suggested that the short term memory could hold seven items plus or minus two variables okay Uh, so it could be five or nine but Miller didn't fully explain how much information refers to each item but the idea is and we all know this we, we all know that we can only do so many things at once and hold so much information in our in our working memory at once but in terms of duration And this is also from the 50s. In 1959, Peterson and Peterson suggested that all information stored in short-term memory that isn't rehearsed will be lost within 18 to 30 seconds. Again, like the forgetting curve, I remember reading that and panicking. And I'm thinking, what? That, That can't be true. But actually as a teacher, I would never just say something once. We, we know that we have to provide students with repeated exposure to material. And that's what this basically, um, the work of Peterson and Peterson suggests, that this is just stressing the importance of repeated exposure to new material. And that this is you know, nothing... New, lots of people have suggested this. Barack Rosenshine um, in his Principles has written about repeated exposure to material. Um, I love the book, The Hidden Lives of Learners by Graham Nuttall, and he actually went into classrooms and he he carried out a massive amount of research and it's absolutely fascinating. And he said that students need to encounter new information at least three times before they understand or grasp the concept. So all of this linking in with the limitations of short-term and working memory. But finally, And this is where retrieval practice comes in. But we do need an awareness of the sensory and short-term memory stages. The final stage of the model, of the diagram, is long-term memory. Now, this is completely different in terms of the duration and capacity. It's incredibly powerful. We don't know the limits of long-term memory in regards to duration, capacity. It's very, very powerful. But it's one thing transferring the information To long-term memory but we need to be able to retrieve it from long-term memory and I often give the example of when you're in a quiz and a question is asked and you think oh I know that I know that it's on the tip of my tongue and it is in your long-term memory but you just for whatever reason cannot retrieve it at that time well I say for whatever reason clearly the retrieval strength um, is low but this happens so many times. And I think as teachers, we may be disheartened. If a student can't recall something, it doesn't mean they haven't learned it. It just means that they, they can't retrieve it. But it's it's there. It's probably there in their long-term memory. And I've given this example a lot where my dad and I were having a conversation about all these places I'd visited in Europe. And we couldn't remember the capital of Denmark Really obvious, uh, and it was really frustrating. It was really annoying. Why, why couldn't we recall this information? Anyway, we topic of conversation moved on, and then five minutes later, my dad shouts out Copenhagen, and I was talking to my mum about this afterwards, saying, "Isn't memory just unusual? Isn't it funny?" And my mum said, "Well, you either know something or you don't." And I thought, "What?" I was like, "No, mum, because he couldn't remember." the capital of Denmark but it didn't mean he didn't know it because five or ten minutes later he recalled that information so it was there all along it just took him a while and this also links into the work of and I know I I do quote (laughs) professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork a lot and their new theory of disuse and that explores the difference between storage strength and retrieval strength Now, Robert Bjork has been described by Dylan Willem as the world leading expert on memory. And I cannot express to you how happy I am that I've been in contact with the Bjorks. And I've been able to ask some questions about retrieval practice and gain some insights. And I've just immersed myself in their research. And it's just absolutely incredible my book is actually dedicated to them as well so not only for helping me at this stage but for helping me throughout my career so anyway (laughs) going back to storage strength and retrieval strength storage strength refers to how well learned something is but retrieval strength is how accessible or retrieval uh, retrievable something is so can we see the difference there's actually further research being carried out um, at the moment. I contacted uh, one of the researchers in America, so oh, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, uh, John Nestor Joko and Ben Storm, and they're looking at storage strength and retrieval strength as a consequence of testing versus re- restudy. So I think in terms of finding out why is some information Um, easier to retrieve than others and the the impact and classroom implications of retrieval and storage strength then I think it's very exciting and I'm I'm looking forward to their research findings being published so back to long-term memory and I've explained that this is very powerful and it's no good just having the information in long-term memory we have to be able to retrieve it when we require it from long-term memory as well but there's also different types of long-term memory that you might be aware of so the first one that I'll talk about are episodic memories so these tend to be a collection of very personal or emotive memories and we all have lots of these and we have these from schools and I think an important part of school and education is providing episodic memories whether that's sports days or Christmas concerts or (laughs) I don't know something came to my mind about your first kiss but that shouldn't really be happening in school I wasn't kissing boys in school oh dear but (laughs) basically anything that is memorable and has a personal connection so these can be positive or negative and actually when I think back to when I was younger I can very clearly remember when Princess Diana died And I can very clearly remember where I was, who I was with, how I felt when I found out about 9-11. So those positive, happy memories, kissing somebody at a school disco maybe, or something tragic, they can be the episodic memories. And I I really do find episodic memories fascinating because I, I went to Berlin on a school trip and I'd been to Berlin previously, but a long time ago, and... When I arrived at a certain point in Berlin on our tour, a memory came flooding back to me that I'd totally forgotten about. And it was because I was back at the same location again and it, it, was, it acted as a cue, as a prompt to trigger a memory that I'd forgotten about. And it was very episodic as well. But we also have procedural memories, knowing how to do something and knowing how to do something so well that it becomes automatic or what we call autopilot. So, if you think about driving a car, and when you learn to drive a car, you're concentrating on each step of the process, you're checking your mirrors and you're looking around. Well, you should still be checking your mirrors <laughs> um, at any point, but. Basically, it, you take it one step at a time when you're learning to drive because it's new to you. And then when you've been driving a while, it, you just get in the car and you just drive. You don't stop and think about every step of the process. It's just natural. And that's this idea of it being on autopilot. So it's something that we do with ease. It doesn't require effort. It doesn't require conscious recall. So this is known as non-declarative memory. And then we have semantic and semantic basically really important in regards to learning uh, refers to the knowledge of facts and information. So I, I remember giving the example of my memories of me eating gelato in Rome are episodic, but knowledge that Rome is the capital of Italy is semantic. So that's how we have that separation and clearly semantic memories are incredibly important and i think the lines have been blurred in lessons where we've tried to provide opportunities that have created episodic memories where lots of us have carried out novelty tasks or gimmicky tasks which will be memorable but they are probably students are likely to remember the the task rather than the semantic content which is what we want them to remember so that's really interesting as well so as i said we've got the multi-store model of memory arthur melton 1963 has a great diagram encoding storage retrieval and that's what i have found really useful as a teacher and retrieval practice involves harnessing the testing effect because every time A student has to answer a question, recall information from memory. It is changing that memory to hopefully make it stronger, make it easier and quicker to recall in the future. And another classic Bjork quote, using your memory shapes your memory. And I absolutely love that. And he's right. So every time we use our memory, we are changing our memory. But the difference with... Retrieval practice and why it's referred to probably as retrieval practice rather than the testing effect is because the low stakes nature. Can you imagine if every lesson there was a high stakes test? Students walked in and there was a high stakes test at the start of a lesson, and all the results were being reported back to parents, they would get a grade. It would be incredibly stressful for the teacher and the students. But retrieval is is regular, it's low stakes, it can be really fun and enjoyable. It, there's lots of variety with it. So retrieval practice should become one of our classroom routines. And there's also different types of retrieval practice as well. So we can have recognition, and this might technically not seem like recall. Um, this is very common with multiple choice questions. But Students do do have to retrieve information when they're answering a multiple choice question because we're asking students to recall prior knowledge so that they can select or identify the correct answer in front of them. But that is providing a lot of retrieval support in comparison to cued recall and free recall. So cued recall doesn't involve recognising or selecting an answer. It does re- involve recalling information from memory, but there's... Again, still some support um, in the form of a cue or a prompt. I have a picture prompt uh, retrieval activity where there's simply um, an icon that is linked to a topic and that icon is enough to to prompt them, to, to give them a, a clue about what they should be recalling. Um, but then we have free recall. There's no hints, there's no clues. Uh, a Brain dump style task, where we write down everything you know about this topic it's hard it's challenging it requires a lot more effort but we will see more retrieval gains uh, and benefits with that as well so I hope I haven't missed anything out I mean I probably have they're probably you know I've written a whole book about retrieval i might in another book and I've tried to explain in 20 minutes the basics of retrieval but hopefully that's helpful As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I do appreciate it. And I really enjoy talking about retrieval practice. (laughs) You'd think after all of the research and reading I've done that I might be sick of it. I'm really not, I don't think I ever will be. And I don't want this podcast to be just about retrieval practice because retrieval practice is just one aspect of teaching and learning. But as I said, at the moment, as I'm writing my book, I'm editing my book, I am immersed in this research and these discussions with people, and I'm really keen to share that with other teachers. If you do want to find out more about retrieval practice, you can visit my website, lovetoteach87.com, and the latest blog post on there is called A Collection of Retrieval Practice Research and Resources. There's links to research summaries and research papers, There's links to blogs written by teachers with their reflections and advice about implementing retrieval practice. There's videos for teachers, videos for students and parents, there's podcast interviews, there's online courses, there's presentations, and I will keep adding to this post. I basically want it to be the place where all of the information about retrieval practice online can be accessed and found, a retrieval practice library. But as I said, I don't just want to talk about retrieval practice and next week in my podcast the episode is called Be Kind, Live It, Don't Laminate It and the idea of living it, it, not laminating it comes from Mary Myatt, she's often spoke about that with growth mindset about how it tended to be a poster on the wall and people weren't actually really applying the growth mindset concept. Um, So kindness in schools, creating a culture of kindness, being kind online. Anyone who knows me personally will know that in recent years I have been making a very conscious effort to be kinder. And that's not to say that I didn't consider myself a kind person before. But I'm only human. I've made mistakes. I could have handled things differently and better and all we can do is learn and reflect and try to do better next time so being kind is a very important part of my life professionally and personally and i look forward to the next episode so once again thank you very much theo khamayon shukran